When we started the company, we took a bet that AI was going to rapidly advance over the coming decade and that something like this actually would be possible. Five years ago, it definitely felt like a crazy bet. And I think most of the investors and other people we talked to felt like it was a very crazy bet. You're listening to Seedcamp First, the definitive guide to help early stage founders get their companies off the ground. Brought to you exclusively through the wisdom and lessons learned from some of the brightest minds across the Seedcamp nation. Hello and welcome to Seedcamp First, the podcast all about how founders got their start, figured out the big problems at the beginning, and grew their company. I'm Devin, and I'm very excited to have Victor Rapperbelli, the founder of Synthesia, on the podcast today to talk about big bets, how you get comfortable with the big long-term product decision, and you then also learn from the mistakes you made. Victor, welcome. Thanks, Devin. Thanks for having me. Before we get really into like how you made the big decisions that built the Synthesia we are today, why don't you give us a little bit of background on what Synthesia does and how it began? Like, What was the initial spark? Yeah, sure. So Synthesia is today the world's largest AI video platform. What we do is very simple. We help people make video content without the need for cameras, studios, actors, and any other sort of physical recording process. You simply just go to our platform, you select one of our AI avatars that looks entirely like a real person. You type out your script, you use this canvas slash PowerPoint style editor to do the rest of your video, screen recordings, text on the screen, things like that. You hit generate, and then you have a video in just a couple of minutes. So that's a pretty big change from having to plan a shoot, get a camera, work with an actor, all those things that usually would go into making video content, right? The world we live in today is very clearly moving towards audiences that don't really want to read. They want to watch and listen to content, and we essentially make it much easier for people to do that. Today, we're very focused on business communications. So that could be training, learning, sales, marketing, those types mm. of videos our customers produce a lot of. On a five to 10 year horizon, our mission as a company is to enable anyone to make a Hollywood film on their laptop with just a Synthesia login and their imagination. So there's obviously still some way from where we are today until we get there, but I'm very confident that we have the right team to essentially build the technology that eventually will be able to replace cameras, microphones, and any other type yeah. of physical recording, which is super exciting. And it's such a grand vision too, the idea of just being able to sit down and knock out a Hollywood film real quick. Was that vision there at the beginning when you started putting the idea of what Synthesia could be together? It actually was. When we started the company, we took a bet that AI was going to rapidly advance over the coming decade and that something like this actually would be possible. Five years ago, it definitely felt like a crazy bet. And I think most of the investors and other people we talked to felt like it was a very crazy bet. But I think with just the advancement we've seen in generative AI over the last three, four, five months, stable diffusion, DALI, those types of things, right? I think it's a lot less crazy today and you can track the path from where we are today and how you would actually do that. So there's still lots of the building blocks that needs to be improved upon, they need to be connected, but the kind of foundational technology I actually do believe is there. But it was part of the vision we found the company and it's very exciting to see not just the progress that we've made, but how this space as a whole has really just evolved so much in the last five years. Yeah, and when you start off like on this big sort of vision quest, for like a better term, there's this very clear idea, this could exist and we can be the company to build it. You know, all founders go through this process of, one, what am I confident in? And then how much am I going to invest in this? Like how far am I going to go in the first attempt to push it, right? There's all this sort of knowledge from like lean startup and things like that. It's like, start small, start very small. But when you're tackling something like Synthesia, you can't really start small. 
You have to build something that can generate video. You have to give it to someone's hands and you can build up some confidence from like pre-selling or like getting pitch decks and getting proof of concepts. But at some point you have to do that whole workflow to see if people actually will use this, will develop it. So how did that start for you all? Because one, first, your team is very in the sense that you've assembled an amazing group early on who had a lot of expertise in the space, but no one had commercially done it yet, right? The commercialization did not exist. So talk us through how you started to one, decide what was the first approach. And then the narrative of what happened as you worked on it. Yeah. Well, so I think we sort of did what you're supposed to not do, right? Which is we started yeah. from a technology, not a problem. Uh-huh. I saw the kind of initial technology the first time in 2016, I think. And I just felt like I saw magic, right? And even though it was a very simple version of the stuff that we have today, I was actually very confident that this is going to evolve and the capability of this is going to be absolutely immense. But starting from a technology perspective, right, and we had a problem, of course, the problem of the video production is a pain, but it's a very big problem, right? There's a lot of different ways to solve that. You know, up until now, a lot of people have solved that by making smaller, more affordable cameras with our phones, for example. We have cameras everywhere, right? Pro, I'd say, is an example of Mm -hmm. something like this as well. And then there's the other end of it, which is like you build better video editing apps. So if you go into your Instagram or your TikTok or whatever thing you download on the App Store, you can get pretty advanced functionality in terms of just video editing in, on your phone. Those are also ways to make it easier to produce video, right? Yeah. We started from a technology in the sense that our thesis from the beginning was we are going to build technology that will replace any form of physical recording. Mm-hmm. Um, what we did was we then tried to really just break down the problem of video production from first principles. And I think it actually was pretty helpful here that neither me nor Stefan, my other commercial co-founder, had any experience in video production. So we approached this like... Yeah, you're coming in blind. You're just like, yeah, we'll figure this out. <laughs> We're coming in completely blind. And uh, we broke down the problem into first principles. And the way we did that was just while the R&D team was working on this first iteration of the product, which was this like dubbing product, so we could take a video and we could change the speech in that video. Uh, usually mm. to a different language. While we were developing that, we just flew around the world, ran around London, just speaking to like 500 people just to understand like what is the pains of video production. How did you find those people? That might be one of the trickiest things when you're making these sort of big bets. You wanted to use research. You want to talk to some customers. How did you reach them? I actually forgot who said this. I think it may be Sam Altman, but someone at one point <laughs> said that in many ways, building a hard company is easier. And we've definitely experienced that, right? When you come to people with such a crazy proposition, and some technology that makes people's jaw drop, you mm. can get access to a lot of people, even though, especially in the early days, was like five people sitting in East London. We did have some money, but we didn't really have anything else than that, right? The mm. amount of people who were interested in talking to us was just immense. And I've been involved in building quite a lot of products also before I built Synthesia, right? Where it was much more incremental. And it's such a pain getting a hold of people. But when you call people up, you write people say, hey, I'm working on this pretty crazy project. Here's a quick demo of what this technology can do. People will talk to you. Yeah. So we actually never found that to be a problem. And that was true back then. It's still true today. But huh. if you're trying to solve a really hard problem, like people will actually go out of their way to speak to you. And I'm so thankful for all the people from billionaires to amazing scientists to industry professional CEOs who sat down and talked with us and helped us without expecting anything in return. So that part of it has actually never been that hard, which... Yeah, this is a slight good. paradox to building yeah. what I'd call a more sort of vanilla SaaS startup. Yeah, very interesting. So sorry, I interrupted you. So you were talking to these customers while the R&D team was milling away at the AI. So what happened with that? So, you know, what we sort of did was then we, we broke down video production and then we tried to reassemble that and kind of map it to a sort of AI maturity curve, right? So the whole right. 
thesis around this, and I think in general, what that's what makes deep tech start special is that the capability of the technology is sort of rapidly evolving in a very different way than if you're building a fintech application, for example. Probably mm. most of the things, the features you can imagine can most likely be built if you just spend enough time on it, right? But a lot of these things when you're building AI products, it's like it will probably be possible one day, but it's very hard to say it's going to be five years or 10 years or next week, right? So yeah. we try to sit down and think of the technology in, okay, what are the different stages this technology can go through and how can that provide value? So the first thing we had, and of course mapped to, can we actually build this technology, right? So the first right. stage of that was what we called video editing. So this was some of the listeners might've seen the thing we did with David Beckham, which is essentially just think of it like you record a normal video, you give it to us, and then we change what the person in the video is saying by reanimating the face and changing the speech track. It's like the simplest way of explaining, right? Yeah. That was the first thing we could see, okay, we can actually build this. It still took a year, but we could actually build something and we can go out there and we can start using it for something. And as soon as we had that, we were just like, okay, let's just go out and try and sell this. We knew that that was not going to be the really interesting product we could build, but it was the first thing we could take to market and start really learning something and have people right. vote with their dollars instead of just their opinions, right? So we went out and huge shout out to my co-founder Stefan and Nadia, our VP of sales, who joined in this kind of wilderness period where it wasn't really working. I think we managed to close like $700K that year and it was really like forcing it down people's throat. We knew it didn't scale. It was very long sales cycles. Yeah. It was just a product that didn't really work right. But what we did get was we got a huge network and we learned a lot. And we also figured out that actually for us, the first really interesting market was not advertisements and all the things you think about when you think about video. Mm. If anyone who's listening to this right now, close your eyes and think of a, see a slideshow in your mind of videos, you're seeing Super Bowl ads, you're seeing whatever content floats to the top of YouTube, you're thinking of like beautifully produced product videos or something like that. In reality, that's a very, very, very small percentage of the videos in the world, right? right. And we sort of quickly realized that actually what would be more interesting is if we could take our technology, take the kind of quality slider down, but make it very, very easy and very, very affordable to use, which that first iteration of didn't have, that was basically a service business. Um, right. So then we could track the next big chapter, right? Which was, okay, we think we can go to this text to video, which is the technology we have today. We think there's a reasonable chance we can do this within a couple of years and within the runway. If we can get to this point, we have a thesis that actually might be both scalable and solve a big problem for our users. So I want to pause there for a second, because what you said was terrifying to some people in the startup land, venture land, right? We'll get there yeah. in a couple of years. And there's this beautiful <laughs> thing you did at the beginning where you sat down and said, here's what video looks like. Here's what we can build. And you sort of had the other axis of like difficulty or time to build, right? And you're like, this translation feature, we could probably get that to market. How quickly was that to concept to when you started actually closing contracts on that translation feature? That was probably a little bit more than a year. Okay, so let's call part. it a year just for simplicity. So that was like the easier to do one, right? And this is just sort of showing like how ambitious what you're building at Synthesia is that like you got to a year all the while talking, learning and building and you ship that and that then influenced you to understand that, wow, we are tackling this problem incorrectly. We need to go back to sort of like what we see in the vision, but it also gave you confidence to do that, right? Like you, you said, ah, it sort of works. We can see how it fits, but this is the wrong customer, right? That was the takeaway. Like this is the wrong person to be working with. Exactly. I think it's, again, you just break down the problem even more, right? It's like, okay, right. video localization is clearly a big problem for people. And it is something that people are interested in. Where is it a big problem? It's a problem for advertisements. But the thing is advertisements, right? Usually the budget is millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. So subtitling that, shooting it with an actor for the Spanish market, for example, in the big picture of things, it's like not that big of a deal. 
Yeah. But then you go to someone who's creating corporate training videos, for example, right? They have very, very, very little budget. And localization really matters for them because if you're mm. like a multinational company and you, you do your content in English and then you send it to the Spanish market, they just won't understand it that well. So we figured out that these people, they really want to produce content. It really works for them, but they have very little budget. Right? Yeah. So they're like desperate for a solution that can improve that. And they're okay going a notch down in quality. An advertisement campaign is not okay doing a, going a notch down in quality. It's also mm. what we saw, right? We were working with these, it would be two PhDs spending two months on a 30-second ad, right? It's like that clearly doesn't scale. And that's because, <laughs> and I think this is a big learning for us as well, right? Is that if you're selling to the kind of obvious users of technology like this, which would be like video production professionals, people who have dealt with video their entire life, mm-hmm. they will be extreme. They would need to be pixel perfect, right? They know things about cameras. They know what good video is supposed to look like. They have a very different lens of looking at a technology like this. It's like, okay, this can enhance my work, but needs to be good enough. When you take it to this other group of people, which we identified, right, which was these people who are making internal content in big corporations, to them, even if the quality is lower, but they can do it themselves directly from their browser, that's magic, right? Because that's something they've never been able to do before. And I think that is in general, if you're taking these like huge steps, you really want to think about new markets as opposed to an incremental solution in an existing market. The power of our platform today is actually that we don't sell to video production professionals. We sell to everyone else, right? Yes. We sell to learning instructors, salespeople, marketing professionals, all these people who before, if they wanted to produce a video, had to go through a video production department, potentially, right? Which is yeah. such a long slog. So I think that those problems, you can really start to like break down. And of course, the problem with dealing with AI technology is that the iteration cycles are just so slow. So you do have to make some big bets. And I think it's also one of the learnings in terms of how you think about product, right? Is that in traditional sort of startup culture, it's all about just like moving fast, lots of experimentation, just build something, see if it works, see if it sticks. Mm -hmm. And there's certainly an element of that, of course, also in AI. But in AI, it's actually okay to sit down and plan a little bit more carefully. It's okay to spend a bit of time trying to think out the potential scenarios we think this will actually work, right? You'd never sit down in a traditional SaaS company and say, hey, let's spend two or three weeks just thinking about if this is the right architecture to build yeah. a database that can serve something on a website, right? That, that would be ridiculous. But if you're about to endeavor into, okay, can we take from a piece of text and create a video, a talking head video of someone saying this? Do we think we feasibly can do this? And how would we do it? It's actually good to spend some weeks of thinking about that before you jump straight into just coding up something. And when you're starting to think about these research projects, right? Actually spending a lot of time doing the work to experiment, to prototype, to architect out these systems. Did you have some sort of evidence that it was worthwhile doing that work? Or was this just a total bet at this phase? Just a total like, yeah, I think this is exciting. We should try it. It is a bet. I think it depends on what kind of AI company you are, right? Are you doing something that's fundamentally new that no one else has done before, which is Mm -hmm. a category that we're in, most of the deep research that we're doing? If you're doing something more like taking some open source models and tuning it, of course, that is a different problem, right? But if you're doing these kind of fundamental research bets, it is ultimately, we think it will be possible one day, but the timing of it will be very difficult. What we have Mm -hmm. consistently found, though, and this is all credit to our absolutely amazing research team led by John, is that... The problems we thought was almost insurmountable, once you start working on them, we've actually solved most of them way faster than we thought we could. Yeah. Which is sort of surprising. I think it's one of those things where you probably overestimate what you can do in a month, but you underestimate what you can get done in a year, right? That's actually a pretty long cycle, even in AI circles. Yeah, excellent point. And so while this research was going on for, let's call it Synthesia 2.0, the next version of your product class, 
what were you up to? What were you and your sort of more commercially minded, outwardly focused teams doing? So we were basically just running around selling the first iteration of the technology. We managed so to still working on the on the translation remapping. Yeah. Yep. So we got that into a shape where a video editor, so not a PhD, could actually use the tech. And then we just kept pushing. And I think one of the strengths we've had as a company, especially being a deep tech company, is actually the diversity of the founders. The yeah. Skills. So we have the deep technical founders. Those are the people that VCs traditionally like when they start a deep tech company, right? It's the PhDs will solve the really fundamental problems. They'll make the self-driving car work or something like that. A lot of people actually didn't like that in the beginning that I was the CEO because I was not the PhD. But then there was the two other people, myself. So I come more from a product background and Stefan mm-hmm. comes more from a sales and operations background. Mm-hmm. And we're just going to go out and sell this. We know it's not the right product, but we just need to learn, right? Get confidence in who is excited about this technology. Get some dollars in the company. It gets energy, right? It otherwise becomes a very long slog. And yeah. it matters quite a lot like that you infuse that energy and that you're in yeah. contact with the real world, right? I think a lot of the research community, if you're actually doing a PhD, it's basically like four years of just sitting by yourself. That's very dangerous state to default into, even if you're a deep tech company. So we were selling it, but we, simultaneously, we were basically building these sort of uh, magic behind the curtain type of applications. So the technology we have today is you send us a piece of text and we'll generate the video. That's a 100% automated process. We actually yeah. had a step in between, which was a terribly designed, I won't even call it a SaaS app but something that resembled a SaaS app where we could send it to our customers. They could go in, select one of two avatars, put some text in a box, click generate video. And then what actually happened was it was just a form that went into the office. And then we were like, holy if now we need to make this video. And then we'd like, we'd (laughs) use the dubbing technology with an actor we had somewhere. So we would call her and say, Hey, we need a video with this script. She would record that script on her iPhone in her kitchen or something like that. We would take that and we would use our dubbing technology to make the video. So this is like insanely costly process in terms of complexity, time and dollars for us. But we managed to give the client 24 hours later a video, right? Which is the experience we have today, a lot slower. But that's where we start to figure out this is actually magic, right? We didn't have the technology, but we sort of faked it behind the scenes. And that is what gave us even more confidence that this is where we need to put the resources towards. And there's something magic about this product. People like that they can just go to a browser and they can do it themselves. They don't need to talk to anyone. That's such an interesting like thing to unlock, right? Like you basically gave them that sort of prototype sort of concierge experiment where you're like, yeah, type it in. We'll give you a video in 24 hours. And there was some tech in place, right? Like we're still doing some generation, but like the audio dub was literally a paid actress or actor doing that work, right? Exactly. That is a shortcut. And then you saw people use that, right? And they're like, oh yeah. That interface exactly. works now. Like we can bet on the fact that people are comfortable with generating video purely from text. Exactly. And I think That's what's amazing. interesting about this is that, especially with deep tech and, and AI, right? Features, I think generally can be harder to imagine because there'll always be like a degree of randomness and you never know, are you going to solve it to like 10 out of 10 to mm-hmm. state a problem? Or is it going to be an mm-hmm. 8 out of 10? It's very difficult to know. So it's very difficult to predict the impact. And something I think we've done well is this sort of fake it till you make it approach, right? And yeah. I think that comes in many different forms. And it's, of course, not like a new concept in building products. But you can hack that with like services, right? And humans sitting behind the screen where what you really want to test out is the experience from the end customer. That's something we've employed quite a lot, you know, other pieces of research where the customer will think that this is like an automated process, but it's actually not. We're just trying to figure out what their reaction to it is. Right? Yeah, I'm that's a big, very powerful. big believer in thinking about early stage products as black boxes, right? There's a black box and then there's a human on one side and there's like the value or the output on the other side. And it's often that human box interface is the most difficult part 
or the riskiest part because that's where often the yeah. new innovative thing that a human's going to do has to touch. And so if you can like fake that black box for a bit, man, it just changes your perspective on it. And you often discover your first initial assumptions are wrong, right? You're like, oh no, that's not how people want to do this work. Exactly. It's really just about improving the speed of the iteration cycles, which is generally very difficult in deep tech, right? It of course depends a lot on the product, but if you're building a self-driving car, for example, it's not trivial to just test out new stuff, right? If you think of it, full <laughs> yeah, it's not. And it's a bit the same for us. And I think one thing we learned very early on, also building that dubbing tech, right, was that, and of course, this doesn't go for everyone, but for us, it's like we need to be end to end. If we are dependent on other people, which we were when we were doing those advertisements, right? Like we're one part of the value chain. We can't really affect how quickly the campaign gets produced. We can't really impact if it's going to get closed or not. Like we're just a small little tech provider that sits in the middle of the value chain, right? Yeah. And that makes it very difficult to iterate fast, right? Because you're just not in control. And that's also something mm -hmm. which we've employed quite a lot, which is the speeding up the iteration cycles by offering something end-to-end. Is also very powerful, right? For us, for example, doing actual video productions for our customers, instead of having to rely on their internal video team or someone else, you know, back in the early mm. days, it's like, okay, we'll do the production for you. We'll eat the cost that we'll offer it at our cost and we'll do it just to prove that it works and what it's going to look like. And I think that's also something you have to be very careful when you introduce like services as part of your product development, your product roadmap and your company as a whole, but it can be incredibly powerful if you apply it right. It can be very easy when you're an AI company to get stuck in waiting for other people who have to test out mm -hmm. your solution. The self-driving car is, is an obvious example, here, but I think it goes for a lot of deep tech products. And I guess that opinion you formed from that almost first iteration when you're trying to be that middle ground between a massive video production workflow, right? Is that where you started to understand this confidence and like being end to end just makes things easier, especially when building something innovative? For sure. That was the first one, but we've had several along the way. So I'll give you another example with the platform that we have today. The first version of our SaaS platform for avatar production was like very simple. You go in, you select an avatar, the avatar is in the middle of the screen and will mm -hmm. speak out whatever you put into the script box. What you can then do is that you can download that video, you can put it into Premiere, like whatever other video editing program you had, and then you could make a video. And that was okay for a subset of the users. But what we figured out was that the real power of this and where we can build a new market instead of trying to disrupt an existing market for video production, is by enabling those people who know nothing about video production to produce beautiful video, right? That's their end goal. So we could maybe give them the avatar, but if they then had to go into Premiere, they'd be completely confused because Premiere is pretty difficult to use if you're not a video yeah. producer, right? <laughs> so we understood that we have to build a creation tool around it as well. And that is, you know, what you could think of as like a Canva or a PowerPoint in the cloud. We need to go down that path because that enables our customers to be end-to-end. It enables us to control the content experience a lot more, especially as I think we move into a world where AI video will diverge a lot from what we know of as video today. It'll be interactive. Yeah. It'll be personalized, but dynamic. If we're only rendering like, again, one part of the video, we're just part of the video value chain by making you an avatar video, we're not going to be able to build beautiful and exciting experiences around that. So we also figured out there we have to be end-to-end, -end, not just in the production of the avatar, but in the production of the video, right? And I think, again, this doesn't apply to everyone, but that's very important things for us when we think about product. And again, that understanding sort of came from like you shipped the version before that, saw the videos to struggle, see the light of day, thus removing value. So you're like, okay, we do need to help these customers like shepherd it all the way out to production, all the way out to their audience seeing the video, right? Exactly. So this was a big project and it's obviously still under production. Like you're still improving and building things, but how did you measure, for lack of a term, like success of it? Like how did you 
check in with both your R&D team, but also the product team and the sales teams to see if it's all working. How did you track that momentum? And did you ever see it dip in a way that made you second guess the approach you're taking? I don't think there's anything fundamentally new in like how you measure success, right? Ultimately, I think usage and revenue are the things that you can measure your success by. Sure. I think that's what you should measure your success by. There are some deep tech companies will measure the success by like how many papers they publish, for example. And not saying that's mm -hmm. wrong, but if you want to build a, an iconic company, that's not the most important one, at least, right? That is usage and revenue and happy customers. I think what is very difficult or different when you're building an AI company is that research teams and product teams function very differently. It's different like personalities. The people who are PhDs in AI and spent four years solving one very specific problem and they're great at thinking very deep about a very specific thing is a different type of people than someone who loves just shipping stuff, building SaaS things, using existing frameworks, gets off and like just getting stuff out the door very quickly. And mm -hmm. marrying like those two is difficult. We actually have two different kind of organizations or functions internally. We have the AI team, we have the product team and they work together. And that is something that's a new dynamic, I think, because it's not like yeah. our R&D team is a satellite org that sits and everyone is like, hey guys, build something cool and maybe we'll use it in the product at some point for us the core of what we do is the ai so getting those two teams to work well together is really important it's less obvious if you're like 20 people but now that those two teams combined is around 60 people i think in our case then mm -hmm. it becomes like how do you do that right do you have shared okrs how do you move things efficiently from being research to being product how do we think about the research roadmap? We're working on things. We think that something's going to happen in 18 months. We have some things that we think is going to happen in three months and we have everything in between. So how do you structure that between the teams is quite difficult. And I don't think I have the answer to that, unfortunately. That was my next question. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I know a lot of founders who are building similar companies and there's a variety of models. One is that you split it in two and you make sure the collaboration works really well. That's what we have done. We have some teams that work on fundamental research. That's the 18 month timelines. We have some people that work on things that are almost ready to go to product on a three month timeline and they hand it over to product. Then there's other companies where they actually mix the two teams together. And it's more this sort of squad based approach where our team will have like research engineers, back end, front end, product managers, etc. I think what for everyone I've spoken to the first model seems to be the one that performs much better because yeah. merging those two things together is just difficult. It's the research process for the R&D teams, right? There's so much randomness. It's so difficult to predict. So you can end up sitting in a team where it's like, okay, great. There's two engineers and they're like ready to go, right? They've built a scaffolding, but the neural networks isn't working. And that yeah. maybe that will be solved tomorrow or maybe that'll be solved in three months. We don't really know that, right? So that model just becomes strange as well. And actually, I think ends up impacting velocity negatively much more than the other way, which is a bit more old school, maybe in the sense that it's a bit more sort of assembly line way of thinking, right? Yeah. But I think that's one thing we'll see as we move into the next decade is that building AI first companies is not just like new technology and new products. It is also new ways of building the actual company, right? Yes, 100%. And that sort of segues really nicely into sort of my big final question, which is what's, you know, you sort of been the product steward of Synthesia from the beginning. And so what's changed in your practice, like how you approach building product from like back in the day when you started out versus today where you've both seen like what works, what doesn't work, especially inside of Synthesia itself. What's changed in your practice? Anything meaningful that you now do today that you wouldn't do back then or vice versa? I think in the early days, it's very much about survival, right? Like you just need to get to product market fit as quickly as you can. You have much less resources, which means that the bets you make, you need to fill as much as possible, you need to feel like fairly certain that that's the right mm -hmm. way to do it and that there's some chance that you'll hit that target in time, right? 
as we've grown bigger and we now have a much bigger research team, we work in kind of different levels of Zoom, if you will. And we yes. take some pretty big bets, right? Um, so there's, of course, stuff that's like very close to product, the things that are coming up, like we're adding gestures to the avatars, emotions, all those types of things. But we're also betting on what's the future of all this stuff going to be, right? How do you actually mm. solve synthesizing digital humans at extremely high fidelity that can't just talk to the camera, they can walk around, they can go for a dance, they can wave at the camera, they can interact with one another. And those things are much harder questions, right? Because no one has solved this yet. So we have two teams that are working on that very long-term solution to that, which is okay. a lot about capturing data. You know, we're building a super expensive capture studio in London. You can make those things when you're further ahead. And I think that's the right way to do it. Of course, with everything relating to AI neural networks, as we know, stuff gets democratized over time. It becomes easier and easier. Like the things we could do a couple of years ago will be easier to do today for a newcomer. So you need to always stay ahead of the game, right? And one way to do that is to sweep the field of possible future directions. Obviously, ah. we're not able to sweep the fields and, uh, you know, let's try everything we can possibly imagine. But we can make a couple of bets that we think this is going to be the way that these problems are going to be solved. And you can take some risky but very big upside bets if they work out right. And of course, staying very close to the academic community as well. Yeah, it's interesting. It seems like both the way you have to think about the structure of an AI company also matches how you think about the AI product. Like there is just an aspect of you need to give some of it space and some of it time to develop, give based on a confident ambition, right? Confident guess at the future. Fantastic. Exactly. And I think so any, wait, wait, wait. I guess this, this will map pretty well. Like, is there any specific suggestions you give to a AI founder starting out today, given how the fields evolved over the last few years? Yeah, I think one thing that I really have found to be true over the last five years is that it's really important to manage your relationship with trends. So mm. we started five years ago, right? There was at one point like generative adversarial GANs. They were like the big hype thing. We've had yep. the metaverse. We've had web free. We have, uh, <laughs> you know, now we have generative AI, which is very bang on what we're doing. And it's very interesting how those trends can definitely help you amplify your message and give you a lot of attention. Definitely mm. has for us but also how it can kill your company if you jump onto the wrong trend and you end up being drawn. It's the kind of like the Moby Dick problem, right? Where you have a big, huge company who wants to do something in the metaverse. And then you go in with them, and like in our case, right? Like we could go in and, oh, let's create 3D avatars and let's put them in the metaverse, something like that. We, got, we could do a lot of those kind of things, right? But then you can get drawn in a specific direction and then you end up doing something which actually isn't for utility. It's for the kind of novel PR value of it. Yeah. Right? And that's AI is very intertwined with that, right? And I think you have to, as a founder, be extremely, extremely careful about focusing on creating real utility for real people. If you get caught up in these things, that might very well be good for half a year, but then you'll crash and burn after because there wasn't really that much utility in that particular trend, right? I'm not saying that you shouldn't engage with any of this. It's just, it can be very easy to get drawn into it and then end up like just being a huge focus distraction that ended up creating some beautiful advertising campaigns, but there's yeah. actually no utility behind it, right? So yeah, the way I think of this is, I have this mental model, which is if you're building like a SaaS company, basically what you have is pretty boring technology, right? So you need to have a very exciting vision. So that's how your to-do app becomes the future of work, right? And that's right. like important because that branding piece is makes people feel good about your product, positions the company, it's a big, exciting vision and all those things. If you're building a deep tech company, you need to reverse those two, right? You have super exciting technology that in itself is PR worthy and people love it and everyone will talk to you about it, but you need to build very kind of boring products. 
You need to be super focused on where you're actually providing value to people. I think if you both build a very exciting tech and you try to have a very exciting vision, so to speak, then you can easily end up in the wrong direction, right? Because it really compounds. We experienced this ourselves when we released the Beckham thing, for example, which was a very hacked together project behind the scenes. But people thought that it was just like some web app you could just put in your video and it'd come out in French. Yeah. So we had, I don't know how many thousands of people we had to deflect, right? And say, oh yeah, it'll kind of work if you pay us a lot of money and it's a video of someone staring like directly at the camera, recorded <laughs> very specifically for this purpose. So there's a lot of those kind of thing with deep tech, right? Where I think it can actually be quite dangerous to blow up too big of a vision in terms of like your marketing. Yeah, it's um, almost like over-promising leads them totally astray from where the product can actually be. And so exactly. you actually exactly. end up... And that's a huge focus distraction, right? And especially if you haven't found product market fit, then those things become even more enticing because mm -hmm. a big company is going to be like, hey guys, you know, we'll pay you $300,000 to create this metaverse experience. And you're like, oh <laughs> shit, I really need that money. And that's you know, a lot of money, the I guess, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And then all of a sudden you end up spending three months of your roadmap on building something specific for them. And then what you will find as a founder is that once you then go to investors, they will completely discount anything that is a service-based project. Mm. They will literally just take that out of their considerations. Like it doesn't matter. Maybe it gave you some good PR. That's cool. But the revenue is, is zero for them, right? They're focused on is there actual business utility in what you're doing? And yeah, is there sustainability in the model? Can is this recurring revenue? Does this grow with a market segment, right? My first business is the exact same problem. We we did a lot of service-based things in the idea of doing R and D that then converts into product, but we never found the time to do that R and D conversion and we ended up in a sort of a very yeah. tricky spot or next fundraise. Yeah, hundred percent. I agree with that. Cool. Well, Victor, thank you so much for sharing this background on how you think about product, especially in something so complicated and visionary as Synthesia IO. I recommend everybody's listening to this podcast. You can go actually try out the studio, I think, right now on Synthesia.io, right? You can just click in and just start generating video and seeing how adaptive and how responsive the tool actually is. Anything else you want to add before we wrap up here, Victor? I think that's it. Thanks for having cool. me. Well, thank you so much, man. This has been a great little chat. Likewise.